0: In this episode of the Braun Body Podcast, you'll be joining me as I discuss some of my biohacking routines and daily habits, what I'm doing to prepare for my upcoming in-person semester in college this fall, as well as stuff I do just to promote general health, immune system health, all of that sort of thing. So without further ado, let's dive in. So this episode kind of piggybacks with episode one or kind of runs tandem with it, so to speak, because we're talking about the virus or COVID-19 and all these other things you can do to help your body get healthier, prep your immune system, and use all these little tips and tricks to fight off infection. So just a quick review, different times I'm going to reference material that I covered in that first episode. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, different things that I did for biohacking my immune system in preparation for this pandemic on a daily basis, go back and listen to that. But I am referencing some different things throughout this episode. So starting off, what exactly is a virus? Because you've heard COVID-19 you've heard pandemic, you've heard coronavirus, you've heard SARS, all these different terms. What exactly is a virus and how is it different than a bacteria? So a virus is actually just a packaged set of genes. So genetic information, it's not a living cell. So if you're infected with a bacteria or maybe you've had a fungal infection, a fungus or a bacteria is living and the virus is not living. It's just genetic information that's kind of floating around freely. That genetic information, when it's in your body, will attach or bind to receptors on a certain type of cell. So in this case with SARS-CoV-19, it appears to be binding on different cells where angiotensin 2 is very prevalent, which is typically in places like the lungs. So it binds to these cells and hijacks your body's cells to reproduce itself and multiply. And this process usually kills the host cell. So it's killing one of your cells after it uses that cell to replicate itself. And remember, cell back to eighth grade biology here, it's that basic unit of life with your nucleus and your mitochondria and all these important things that you need to live So the other things you have to note about a virus is they tend to mutate a lot more frequently and more rapidly than other infections. And we've seen that with this uh, COVID-19 already. They've estimated that it's already mutated a few times. And from what we know, it's been out for, what, seven months, eight months at this point? So it's changing pretty rapidly, and that makes treating it and addressing it with something like a vaccine much more difficult because it's constantly changing. Now, one good thing to remember is humankind, we faced dozens and dozens of viral diseases, epidemics, pandemics, all of that sort of thing in our history, and we're still here. So we got to be doing something, right? So, we faced HIV, swine flu, West Nile virus, influenza, SARS, the Zika virus, Ebola. We faced all these different things before. So, we have a history with the virus. Now, one big thing, and I'm going to talk about this in depth at different points throughout the episode, is being healthy is so important when it comes to viral illnesses and diseases. So if you are someone who is living with a chronic disease, such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, or the like, unfortunately, there's an increased risk for complications from COVID-19. So this goes for type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, liver diseases, people who are smokers, all these different things. Statistically, the science shows the research shows, you can go on the CDC website, or you can go on any website that's a specialist for any of these diseases, so like the American Diabetics Association, they all say, plain and simple, if you have one of these chronic conditions, you're at an increased risk for severe complications from COVID-19. So I do want to talk about some of those different chronic diseases and things you can do If you have them, on treating them and things you can do to help prevent them if you don't have them yet. And ultimately, you do want to work with your primary health care provider for anything of that sort, just to make sure you're heading in the right path. One of the things you've probably heard me talk about extensively on my podcast episodes is how we are all such different people. What works for me might not work for you. So take an example here. Maybe I go on a carnivore diet and you go on a vegan diet and my carnivore diet works really well for me and your vegan diet works really well for you. That's great. No more science to it. We're different. We all are. And different things work better for different people. So just making sure that you have someone there to help guide you through that. And as always, you can reach out to us on social media at Braunbody, brawn with a W. And feel free to reach out in our DMs or comments or anything like that. And ask us some questions too. We're happy to help and point you in the right direction. So let's break this up similar to what we did in episode one. So I'm going to start by talking about some different lifestyle things you should be doing or can do to help strengthen your body's immune system and promote overall health. And then I'm going to talk about different nutritional and supplementation things because a lot of people look for supplements for immune health or they look for foods to bolster their immune health. So we're going to talk about that separately second. So diving into lifestyle biohacks. The first thing is sleep. And I actually talked about this in the recovery podcast, episode five, a little bit. So we might reference some similar things there as well. So what is the literature? what does the research, the science say? We have evidence that shows if you sleep less than six hours per night, you are at an increased risk for certain types of viruses. So the less sleep you get, the more likely you are to get sick. And if you've ever noticed, when you are sick, you tend to sleep more. So for example, a week ago from when this podcast is going to air on that Monday, so about nine or 10 days ago when this podcast airs, I had a little stomach bug. Just a you know, little stomach flu kind of thing, took like 12 hours to get rid of it. But that day, I slept for 11 hours, including what I slept that night. Now, normally I sleep about seven, maybe seven and a half hours a day. So for me to all of a sudden, you know, increase my sleep by about four hours, that says something. And the science backs this up. Again, when you're sick, you sleep more and that's likely to strengthen your immune system. So when you're sleeping, your body has a chance to kind of detoxify and heal. So in that muscle recovery podcast, we're talking about how sleep is the time for your body to repair its muscles. and If you're not sleeping properly, your body cannot repair and grow new muscle. So our basic recommendation is for adults, so anyone over the age of 18, get at least seven hours per night. That's consistent with all the guidelines you'll find from different organizations, uh, but not all sleep is created equal. So seven hours a night, a lot of people are probably listening to that saying, oh man, I wish I got seven hours a night. And some of you are probably saying, you know, I wish I could get seven hours of good sleep a night. So maybe you're sleeping seven or eight hours already, but it's kind of rocky sleep. You don't wake up feeling energetic and restful and rejuvenated. So what should you do if that's the case? So some of the things I do that really help me uh, staying consistent with my bedtime and my wake up time. So I go to bed about the same time every day, somewhere between 9 and 9.30 and I wake up sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock and I'm at the point where that's almost natural. It's almost second nature. I've been doing that schedule for years now, I believe. It's been quite a while so I don't really need an alarm in the morning And if I do wake up to my alarm, I know something's wrong or I know I really needed some extra sleep or something. But for the most part, my body functions really well on that schedule. So it's kind of keeping my circadian rhythm consistent, which is also important. So your body has a biological clock, your circadian rhythm. And that's how it keeps track of the time on the inside. So you probably notice certain times a day, you feel certain ways, so maybe about 4:30 hits, and you start to get hungry, and maybe it, your body is preparing for dinner at 5 o'clock. Great. Now here's the big thing: you have to maintain a consistent circadian rhythm. Ideally, it's okay if it's off a little bit, but ideally you keep it as close as you can. So the best way to do that is keep things consistent, like your meal times like your daily habits, like exercise, for example. So I wake up, I exercise, and I eat twice a day. I eat brunch about noon, one o'clock, somewhere in there, and I eat dinner sometime about five o'clock. That's it. And because of that, my day is consistent and my body is very adjusted to what it's going to have to do at certain times of the day, biologically. And The real interesting thing to me is that you can really modify this with time and practice. If you put enough prep work into it, you can basically train your body to work or evolve your body to respond to pretty much any situation. So you could eat dinner and then go outside and go for a walk. And then maybe the next day you eat dinner and then go outside and go for a jog. And then the next day you eat dinner and go outside and go for a run. And you could train your body to run doing endurance activity with a full stomach. For me, that's something I really struggle with. If I eat, the most you're going to get out of me for the next hour is walking. Light walks, maybe a hike, but I could never run on a full stomach. But with practice and time, you can teach your body to do that. Because it falls into a rhythm. It falls into a pattern on a daily basis. And as long as you keep that pattern consistent, you can pretty much teach your body to do anything. So, little note about that. Now going into blue light glasses. So, big thing right now is screens, phones, TVs, video games. There's some new PlayStation and Xbox coming out this fall. All kinds of crazy stuff right now. And if you're working from home, if you're still stuck at home with a quarantine, you're probably spending a lot of time glued to the screen. So blue light glasses or blue light filters on your phone are a great way to protect your eyes and promote that circadian rhythm. So light really messes with your body's circadian rhythm. So when it's about two o'clock right now, You look outside and it's sunny. It's bright. That light signals our body to say, look, it's daytime. We should be awake. We should be energetic, alive, all that sort of thing. At night, sun goes down. It gets darker out. That signals to our body, oh, wait, you know, it's nighttime. We need to tone it down a little bit, get ready for bed, get ready to sleep. Well, we have screens. We have light bulbs. We have all these things. That our ancestors hundreds and thousands of years ago didn't have because of that we have this artificial environment that signals to our body that it's always daytime the blue light glasses are sort of a night switch a night mode so to speak for your body you put them on and they block the blue light which is what keeps you awake so blue light inhibits melatonin production in your brain, and melatonin is responsible for helping you go to sleep. So if you block the blue light, your body can produce melatonin, and then you can go to sleep. Great. So the ones I recommend are from Swanwick, or Swanee's, uh, the Night Swanies. They are fantastic. I'm going to put a link to those in my show notes, which are posted over at brawnbodytraining.com in our blog. But these are phenomenal. They have the dark tint. So I'm talking that nice orange color. The reason I love that is that orange color blocks about 99% of blue light. So you're not going to get much better than that. A lot of these other companies that I've seen use the clear lens. The problem is a clear lens can only block so much. Usually about 10 to 40%. And that's great for during the day if you're looking at your screen for a long time and like I said, working from home, doing something where you're at your laptop or your computer for eight or nine hours a day. But if you're just looking to wear something before bed to help you sleep better, I have had great benefits from wearing my night swannies at night, Uh, usually about an hour or two before bed. My body just kind of responds very well to that, tones itself down. And when I hit the bed, I absolutely crash. So, highly recommend looking into those. Additionally, you should also set your environment properly for sleeping. So, whether that's adjusting the temperature in your bedroom to a certain uh, degree range that you enjoy. So, for me, I like it colder. For some people, they like it warmer. So, getting the temperature set. Setting up, you know, if you have the a certain way that you like your sheets and pillows, I always sleep with a pillow between my knees, for example. So just making sure I have all of that ahead of time, keeping the lights off, and with that, blocking anything that might emit light. So for example, I'll take black electrical tape and tape over different things in my room that might emit light at night because I want my room... As dark as I can get it. Just a little hack there. But ultimately, you want your bedroom to be set up perfectly, or as perfect as you can make it, for you to sleep. However that might be. So, we talked about sleep. We have another big S to talk about. Something that so many people are feeling and struggling with right now. Stress. And kind of with stress, I'm going to throw in mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness. So stress, if you are chronically stressed, meaning you're stressed over and over and over again, and you've got higher levels of cortisol, which is your stress hormone, you're actually going to weaken your body's immune system. So let's think about that. Everyone's been stuck at home. This whole pandemic thing's been stressful. That's been weakening our body's immune systems. And because of that, people would become more susceptible to the virus, right? The stronger your immune system, the healthier you are, the better chances you have against any kind of infection. So additionally, psychological stress alters the immune system. So we've got chronic stress that's kind of suppressing and shutting down the immune system. And now we've got psychological stress that alters your immune system, how it responds, how it functions. So stress long-term in different forms is pretty bad. However, short-term stress can be positive. So let's take exercise, for example. So say I go on a 30-minute run, and I'm going to do an interval run. So I'm going to go do a two-minute sprint and then do two minutes of recovery, and I'm going to do that for 30 minutes or so. Great, good workout. So that is actually a form of stress because we are stressing our muscles in that fight or flight kind of mode. So when I do my sprint, my body is going to dump glycogen and other stores of energy out into my bloodstream to push me further when I'm running or make me run faster or all that sort of thing. It's triggering that fight or flight response, that running from a saber tooth tiger sort of feeling. And that, again, exercise, it's a form of stress. In the short term, it's kind of a bad thing. If you look at studies that show the different inflammation markers and the damage that exercise can do, you just kind of scratch your head. Like, what? This is good for people? But because it's so extreme and your body has this resiliency about it where it can recover and come back stronger, it's good for your health. In a way, you're breaking your body down and then building it back up stronger. You stress your body a little bit and then it comes back stronger and more effective and efficient at facing whatever stress you put on it. But exercise is a form of stress and obviously a very beneficial form of stress because we know about all the benefits that exercise can provide. Again, long-term bad stress, bad. So with that, you should avoid long-term stresses and focus on those beneficial short-term stresses like the exercise. So again, exercise can be bad too. If you're someone who's going over training or overclocking, then you are probably going or overreaching, I'm sorry, not overclocking. You're going to experience some of these. Uh, side effects of being stressed so I'm talking about people like runners especially are notorious for this where they'll run 100 plus miles in a week's time they're running for 12 plus hours per week you don't usually see that with gym goers sometimes you do most of the time most people I know they look for like an hour workout five days a week and five hours a week. That's manageable for most people, but there are people I know who have gone more than that, and they've gone for two three-hour workouts multiple days per week or multiple times in a day. So this makes me think back to high school football when we had two-a-day workouts that were three hours long each, so six hours of football, and then people were still squeezing in their lifting. Or they were working uh, at the same time they're working in a stone quarry or working on a farm, something that required a lot of physical labor. And I can imagine that those people were really overtraining and overreaching. And because of that would have been experiencing some of the stress side effects from that. So exercise is good. Too much exercise, not good. So what all can we do for stress? I already talked about exercise, and I'm going to talk a lot about more, a lot more about that in a minute. But you can also look into yoga or Pilates, something that's light enough on your body that you can do it for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, it's not just good for your body, it's good for your mind, it's good for your spirit. They talk about yoga for the soul all the time, meditation, just sitting and not really doing anything, just clearing your mind, focusing on you right where you are, right at that moment, breathing deeply, getting connected to yourself. Very good for reducing stress, very therapeutic. I've also seen a lot of people getting into journaling, which I also think is a great hobby. And about a year ago, let's see, yeah, it was last September, October, I did a little journaling with Mastin Kipp's book, Claim Your Power, highly recommend that. So if you're looking for a place to start with journaling, grab a grab a copy of that book and dive into it. Great read. So you can journal. You can also pick up some different hobbies. So some different hobbies, like for me, I've been doing some woodworking. So I've been building a coffee table that'll go in the living room of the house I'll be living in in this fall semester here. But there's plenty of other things. You can sew You can start a garden. You can get into cooking or baking and start making some really cool stuff. Um, I envy anyone who is really good at baking. I can cook okay, but when you put me in front of an oven and tell me to uh, bake you something, it doesn't usually come out good. I can follow directions on like a box easy enough, but obviously that's not what we talk about when we talk about baking. And the people who are really good at it. But there's so many things that you can go out and do from your home. And the nice thing is we live in the information era. Anything that you want to learn, you can learn for free from the internet. Look for WikiHow's. Look for YouTubes, YouTube videos, how-to videos. You can basically teach yourself anything that you want. The information is there. You just got to find it and put in the work. Last thing I'm going to touch on under this little stress category that I'm talking about is breathing. So you can actually calm yourself down by breathing and you can stress yourself out by breathing. Kind of crazy. But so when you breathe, a normal healthy breath should be in through the nose, out through the mouth, right? Where the belly expands and life is good. Deep diaphragmatic breath. Lungs fill up, lungs deflate, great, we know how to breathe. But sometimes people breathe through their mouths. Sometimes people breathe really fast and they hyperventilate. Sometimes people breathe really slow and they take these pauses and we call that kind of box breathing pattern. So when you breathe through your nose and out your mouth and you're taking those deep diaphragmatic breaths, or you're doing a box breathing pattern where you're breathing in, holding for a few seconds and letting it out all about three to five seconds each phase. Those increase your parasympathetic nerve tone, specifically your vagus nerve. These are good things because they activate your body's rest and digest mode. Your parasympathetic nerve branch is rest and digest, kind of chill out, so to speak. Almost like a Netflix and chill mode for your body. Great. Hyperventilating, so breathing really fast or mouth breathing, breathing through your mouth, increase your body's sympathetic nervous system. So the opposite. So this is kind of like that fight or flight, saber tooth tiger mode for your body. So think about when you might be hyperventilating. When you're in a scary situation where you're stressed, think about when you're going to be mouth breathing. Usually when you're running and you're really pushing hard and exerting yourself. So evolution, looking at the evolution timeline here, when we think about a thousand plus years ago, it makes sense that those activities would increase our body's stress mode and make us stressed because if we're breathing through our mouth, Because we're exerting ourselves so hard, you know, a thousand years ago, we're probably trying to run away from that saber-toothed tiger or the snow bear that we were hunting. Or we're hyperventilating because we just saw something. Like maybe we saw someone get mauled by a bear. Terrible thing. But when we think back evolutionarily, thousand plus years ago, that could have been where it came from. To understand where we are in the present, sometimes you have to look back. And we're lucky enough to be able to do that in health and fitness. So everything is a product of our past. So that's just a little bit of how breathing and your breathing patterns can impact your stress levels. So, good stuff there. We've covered sleep. We've covered stress. Exercise. You know From hearing about that podcast that I did, oh geez, months ago now, about all the benefits of exercise, that I had to bring this up when we were talking about immune system and immune health. So again, exercise is good. Too much exercise is not good. But most people don't have to worry about that. Most people are not going out on 20 mile runs every day. Most people are not spending four or five hours in the gym every single day. So, again, most of us were probably okay, but there are some people who need to keep that in mind. So, what does the literature say? Moderate levels of exercise have been found to lower the risk of respiratory infections. Meaning, if you're someone who exercises at a moderate level, so that 150, 200 minutes a week range, you know, 30 minutes, five to six times a day, or five to six times a week, I'm sorry, then you're at a lower risk than what is considered average or normal or general population, people who might not get that same level of activity for respiratory infections. And again, we all know a famous respiratory infection that's going around right now, right? So um, one thing I'm going to add in here real quick too, while we're talking about this, I have all of the studies that I've referenced all lined up for you in the show notes over at brawnbodytraining.com. So if you're interested in seeing where any of the things I'm saying are coming from and want to learn more and know more, check those out because you can really dive in. All the direct links are right there. So great. So we talked just a second ago about how moderate levels of exercise lower your risk of respiratory infection. So a moderate level of exercise can be just taking a 30 to 45 minute walk every day. And if you can't do that all in one go, you can break it up. You can do a 10 minute walk five times a day. And you're going to hit that daily activity target pretty easily. Good stuff. So exercise can also help clear out your lungs and your airways. So one of the things we learned about in the spring in one of my grad school classes I'm in school for my doctorate of physical therapy and we had a cardiopulmonary course and we learned about how exercise can be beneficial for clearing your airways. So all that extra blood flow, all that extra heavy breathing, it helps clear bacteria and other particles out of your lungs, out of your airways. And because of that, you have a lower risk of catching a illness like the cold or something similar. So, clearing your lungs, clearing your airways, getting the bad stuff out means it's less likely to exert its harmful effects. Great, makes sense. Exercise can also increase your body temperature, which has been found to limit bacterial growth. So, we know when you get sick, you get a fever. If you're out in the sun exercising and sweating really hard and heavy, odds are. Your body temperature is a little bit above 98.6 or something along those lines. So that's going to aid your immune system in fighting infections. Because again, it's almost like you're building in your own fever by doing something beneficial. Exercising. There's also studies that show exercise lowers inflammation and improves the immune response. And exercise improves vaccine effectiveness. That should be a big thing that everyone's doing right now with the talk of a potential vaccine for COVID-19. Now, additionally, I've talked earlier about hypertension, type 2 diabetes, different chronic diseases. So if you are a person who has a chronic disease, notice I said person first. I know a lot of doctors especially make the mistake of saying, you know, the diabetes or diabetic patient, we're we're people first here at Brown Body. So if you are a person who is living with diabetes or a person who is living with some sort of chronic disease, there are groups and agencies out there that can help you to treat or reverse your condition. So I know for type 2 diabetes, especially Sammy Inkinen who founded Verda Health, Verda Health is a huge company that's focused on helping people reduce their uh, insulin levels and then reverse their type two diabetes through nutrition and diet interventions. So there are all kinds of resources out there to help you if you have a condition, and if you don't have a condition and you're looking to prevent that from occurring, then exercise and diet and taking care of your body are some of the best things you can do. So again, I took a whole course in my undergrad year about how exercise is used to treat and prevent pretty much any condition you can think of from cancer to lung diseases to metabolic syndrome and obesity and diabetes, and even how exercise plays a role in things like thyroid diseases. Exercise pretty much benefits everything. So if you're someone who's not exercising and wants to start, get an okay, get a clearance from your doctor and uh, reach out to me on social media. Send me a message. Send me a comment and just say, hey, reach out to me. I want to talk about this, whatever. And again, once you get that okay from your doctor and we're good to go, then we'll start progressing you. We'll get you moving and get you active and everything should go smoothly. So that's my little personal plug for exercise is good, because I've been hearing it for years and years in school. So exercise is good. But you are what you eat, right? So it's time to talk about some nutrition and supplementation stuff that you can be doing to stay healthy and promote your immune system's health. So Personally, my eating strategy, I want to go over this. I know I've posted different times on social media about different diets. People do carnivore, vegan, all these different things. So I keep it very simple. I do, I guess you could call it a paleo diet or a modified paleo diet. So I eat natural. I try and avoid any food that's really packaged or looks like it comes from a factory, so something like, you know, those granola bars that are wrapped in a wrapper and then boxed up real nice, and they've got like 30 ingredients in them, 40 ingredients with them. Those are the kinds of things I try and avoid. I try and stick to things like meat, fruit, vegetables, fermented dairy. Um, I do a ton of yogurt, and I also really love blue cheese, love blue cheese, So those are the main focuses for me. So meat, I really love grass-fed beef, whether it's ground up or pressed into a burger or in a steak form, grass-fed beef really hits well for me. Uh, I love chicken, especially the higher qualities. I can kind of taste a difference in it and see a difference in it. I also really love fish. Mahi, mahi is my favorite. And eggs, I'll throw them in here. I love eggs and I usually have eggs for brunch every single day. And these are all complete sources of protein, meaning they have all the essential amino acids your body needs in them. They're very highly bioavailable as well. And this is the argument for the, one of the arguments for the carnivore diet is meat proteins are best absorbed by the body. So eggs and egg whites are usually number one. And then chicken and beef are and fish sources are like two through five, so to speak. So your body is meant to break down meat and animal proteins and it does so really well. So meat, good. Fruits. I usually focus on berries. I love berries, especially wild blueberries. Uh, I will go for organic strawberries different times. Uh, raspberries, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about different berries later in this show, but berries are good, avocados are good, and I also like uh, tomatoes. They're something that I grew up not really liking, but now I love homemade tomato salsas and homemade tomatoes, tomato uh, sauces and different things along those lines. And, you know, when I say things like tomato, I don't really know if it's a fruit or vegetable. I'm going with fruit because that was the last I was told. But I'm not eating a tomato straight up. I'm eating it, say, as part of a salsa. And again, we do homemade salsa here. So it's very clean. It's got the tomatoes. It's got the peppers, the onions, sometimes a little bit of corn if you want a corn salsa, different things like that. Um, So it's got a lot of whole foods going into it. And nothing really artificial or fake about it, which is good. So speaking of vegetables, peppers and onions, spinach. I do like lettuce. I do like my salads. Um, I do really like zucchini, asparagus. Uh, The list goes on and on. Sweet potatoes. Love sweet potatoes. Um, And these are all just staples in my daily eating for the most part. Um, And then I said fermented dairy, so kefir, Greek yogurt, especially when I do homemade Greek yogurts, um, all kinds of good stuff there. So just for the most part, keeping it natural, keeping it clean. And that actually will reduce the amount of added sugars you take in. So if you're eating a protein, so some type of animal source and some kind of produce so say I'm having dinner and I have a eight ounce cut of grass-fed, grass finished steak, and I have a sweet potato, and that's my dinner. So I've got my protein and I've got my produce and the sweet potato has carbs in it. Great. There's no added sugars in that. There's no grains in that. So all these different things that you know doctors will, some doctors will recommend you remove from your diet. Added sugars, grains, processed foods, it's not there. And I love eating like this, and I do it every day, and I don't tire of it. Most people, if you gave them the option to eat a steak and a sweet potato when they go out to the restaurant, like, say, a steakhouse, they're going to take that. I know I take it every time. I love it. So, again, lowers those added sugars, lowers the amount of grains you're consuming, And tying this back into chronic diseases, studies show that added sugar consumption is linked to metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and more. And all of those compromise your immune system. So again, alters your vaccine response, alters how your body can respond to an infection, and increases your risk for severe complications for COVID-19. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm just trying to give the facts of the situation and what we know at hand. Uh, There's a lot of other evidence that also shows things like sugars and grains can impact your cognitive functioning. So how well your brain works, how well you're able to focus. It even impacts your gut health. So there's a lot of people with gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerances, and they have to avoid grains altogether. So just keep in mind that you literally are what you eat. So if you eat mostly clean and natural foods, then your bodies should function pretty well. But if you're eating a lot of these fake artificial things, again, things that are very processed and come from a factory or a lab, then you're probably not going to feel 100%. And that might be why. Address things at the source. You know, It's uh, your body's like a race car. And if you're not putting the best fuel into your race car, then it's not going to run as effectively and efficiently as it should feel like I've said that before. So I mentioned I was going to talk about berries, elderberry. So elderberry is kind of trending right now as a immune system booster. And this is something I did not include in episode one. So I wanted to make sure we hit it here. Uh, Fun fact, my uncle, my Uncle Bob, pretty sure everyone has an Uncle Bob. I feel like that's like a requirement or something to grow up. Um, I know pretty much everyone I knew had an Uncle Bob. Kind of crazy how that works. But he used to make elderberry wine. So if you like the taste of elderberry and want to enjoy it in a different fashion, you can look into making wine with elderberry. So... Elderberry is loaded with micronutrients, especially vitamin C, but also some fiber and antioxidants and all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of promising antiviral research. And again, I've linked to all kinds of studies that review elderberry in the show notes. So some of the highlights were reducing flu symptoms by up to four days so they were giving elderberry to people who had the flu and other people who had the flu did not receive elderberry and those receiving elderberry tend to recover and their symptoms would subside 4 days quicker on average that's pretty impressive additionally there's another study that looked at air travelers so people going places by plane and those who consumed elderberry reduced and prevented sickness from occurring in people who were traveling by air. So they were were flying from one place to the next, and those who took the elderberry had reduced rates of infection, or if they were, um, yeah, it was reduced duration or prevented altogether. So if they did get sick, it wasn't going to be as bad, But most likely, they were not going to get sick. And these were pretty well-constructed studies from what I saw. One of the things I like to do before I mention a study or link to a study is review it. I don't want to just give you any random thing off Google. Anyone can do that. These are studies that were double-blind. They factored in a placebo. One was a clinical trial. These are solid studies that I've referenced. So again, if you're interested in them, please look into them. They're all linked right there for you. But again, elderberry, as far as I'm concerned, it's a thumbs up. All the research looks very promising. I myself have been using it and I've had very positive results from it. And again, I also really enjoy the taste And if you really want to play around with the taste, again, you can make wine with it. And who doesn't love a good glass of wine? So, elderberry. Now we're going to review a little bit from episode one here for a minute. So, raw honey. I am still doing this, still advocating for it. Love it. Um, I actually use it to treat my allergies. And I found that... When I use raw honey, I do a spoonful every day, mix it in with my uh, yogurt, Greek yogurt. And I've stopped using over-the-counter allergy medicines. And my allergies, I have not had an issue with them in years just by doing this. I had heard it was a anti-allergy, it had anti-allergy properties in it, honey did. And I've been amazed at the results lately. So really like that. Uh, It's also antifungal, antimicrobial, which means it fights microbes, uh, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, hepatoprotective, and anti-cancer. So basically, honey is this insane superfood that does all kinds of great things for our body. Other plus about honey is it never goes bad. So you could have honey that's a year old And as long as you can get the taste of it down, it's good to go. So, you know, especially when we're talking about quarantining and, you know, you don't know when your next trip to the grocery store is going to be, you can really stockpile this stuff if it's available. Uh, Additionally, honey can be a local analgesic, so a local pain uh, reducer. And they compared honey in its uh, ability to act as a pain medicine, so an analgesic and compared it to NSAIDs such as naproxen. This is straight from one of those scientific studies I just mentioned. So, they literally looked at honey and said this is just as good as taking a over-the-counter NSAID like naproxen every day. Except you don't get any of the side effects. So, Highly recommend looking into adding honey to your diet. Raw honey, local honey is the best if you can get it locally, um, especially for the allergy purposes. But this stuff is a superfood for your body and your health in all systems, especially the immune system. Again, antifungal, antimicrobial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and these are all research proven Time and time again, over and over. So really like honey. Additionally, apple cider vinegar with the, mud, with the mother. Raw, unfiltered stuff. It's effective as an antibacterial. Effective as an antifungal. All great things. There's also some good research out now about apple cider vinegar as an antiviral agent. So we had kind of speculated about that for a while but it's here and it looks very good. So this is another area where, you know, people are probably looking at this and saying, okay, great, I could add this raw and filtered organic apple cider vinegar with the mother to my daily life. How am I gonna do that? So you can drizzle it over a salad, so oil and vinegar kind of combination on a salad. You can use it to make salad dressings So maybe you do a homemade Italian dressing and you use apple cider vinegar and olive oil as your base, or you can do what I do and knock it back as a shot on a daily basis. It might not be the most tasty, but as long as you water it down and dilute it, it usually goes down okay. And I actually mix mine with turmeric powder. So organic turmeric powder is another thing I mentioned in that first episode Because it is a extremely potent antiviral, anti-inflammatory. It boosts the immune system. It boosts your body's ability to recover from exercise, from different stresses, all kinds of great things. So it is gold in color. And I like to say that it's gold for a reason because it's like a golden standard thing. And it's actually been proven in research. Again, please look at these studies all kinds of great information here. Turmeric has been shown to act against influenza, against hepatitis C, HIV, and strains of staph, strep, and pseudomonas. So this one simple root really, I think turmeric is a root, um turmeric powder, organic, high quality clean stuff. It's helping your body's immune system and fights all these different bacteria and different viruses. And I know someone is probably listening to this right now and they're saying, Dan, what did any of these have to do with the coronavirus? And I'll just say, I'll just stop for a second and say straight up, you got me. We don't have any research that shows the effectiveness of raw honey in treating the coronavirus. We don't. But we have research that shows that raw honey, turmeric, elderberry, all these different things are beneficial in fighting other viruses. And again, we know that viruses have that genetic information that they get in the body and take over cells. So I would like to assume that some of these things would probably help against the coronavirus. And if they are not helping you against COVID, then they are helping you against all these other things. And now you have a lot less worry for things like hepatitis C, HIV, influenza, staph, strep, all these other different infection types. So I would highly recommend still doing these things. I do them on a daily basis. Again, we don't know for sure if it helps against the coronavirus or not. But if it helps against all these other infections, then don't you want to be able to live your life without worrying about those things? And it will also those things will also promote your immune health because you're not fighting infection. You know, say you got the COVID, the coronavirus, and you got a staph infection at the same time. That's not good. But if you have built up your immune system, And done healthy things to fight a staph infection, then your body can handle the situation at hand, the coronavirus, much more effectively. So, that's my little getting off my high horse there. Turmeric, now organic cacao, still a review from episode one here. Cacao activates your natural immunity and enhances vaccination induced immune response so that helps to protect against the uh different viruses and diseases that study specifically looked at influenza but again all kinds of great health properties and health benefits to organic cacao now if you're looking at that saying okay i don't want to get organic cacao powder and try and figure out how to fit that in with everything else Um, i mean you could use it for like a mole chicken i think they use cacao or you could just look for a high-quality dark chocolate. And I mean one of those extremely dark blends, like 80% or more. And try having a square or two of that every day. Not too much, because too much chocolate can be bad, like most things. But a little bit of that, nice little treat, and very good for you. So, that's the End of the episode one review there that I kind of threw in. So if you want more about that, you can go back and listen to episode one where I talked all about those things in even more detail than I did just now. So back to the issue at hand, probiotics and gut health, because I mentioned before about sugar and gut health. Probiotics and your gut microbes can actually also influence your health and your immune system. So your gut tends to control your immune system, according to some different studies. The gut is kind of like the director. Now, that seems kind of weird and contrary to what I learned in pathophysiology, because I was like, wait a second, B cells and T cells and all those different things. But think about it. If you get sick, then it's got to get in your body somehow. Maybe it goes in through your lungs, through your respiratory pathogens. Uh, passages, but if it doesn't go through that, the only other way is through your esophagus to your gut. And again, I talked about how last week I had that kind of 12hour stomach bug kind of thing. Again, gut was the target there. So your gut health is actually very closely linked with the health of all other parts and systems in your body. There's studies that show that gut health is connected to brain health. Gut health is connected to heart health. Gut, health. gut health is connected to immune health, all kinds of things. For the most part, they say that if stuff is bad for your gut, it's going to be bad for your body in general. So let's think about, say, gluten intolerance again. If you are someone who cannot digest gluten and you feel really awful every time you eat gluten, odds are it's not going to be good for the rest of your body. Or let's say you have what's known as a leaky gut. So this occurs when your diet is a little less than optimal, not healthy, and you're eating things that is that are really hard on your stomach. You can actually expand the junctions in your stomach lining, your stomach wall, and you can open them up or perforate holes in your stomach and your gut, and then you end up with this leaky gut syndrome where food... Literally partially digested food leaks out of your gut and into your body. And because of that, your body has to attack it with the immune system because it's where it should not be. Um, You know, famous quote here I have, it all starts in the gut. You are what you eat. So gut health is body health. And there's even potential links with autoimmune diseases. Here with gut health. So there's been speculation that things like Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis, MS, that they might start in the gut in some people. So it's kind of crazy how we think about all these different things. And they're all fine. The research is finding more and more evidence that it might tie back to the gut. So obviously taking care of your gut health should be a top priority. Now, how would you do that? A lot of people like to look for probiotics, and probiotic supplements can be effective. Um, I look for things like berberine and ruteri most of the time. Um, There's a little bit of speculation on which probiotic supplements are most effective and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I think if you're eating fermented foods... If you're eating these natural probiotic supplements, things like kefir, uh, yogurt, fermented dairy, sauerkraut, although it is not my favorite, it's fermented and it has those probiotics, and you're eating other foods that contain pre and postbiotics, so things that will feed these beneficial bacteria that live in your gut, so things like fiber, for example, then odds are you're going to be in a pretty good spot as far as your gut health and life is good. If you're eating healthy, for the most part, again, you know, life should be good there. I'm looking here. uh, Sorry, if you hear me, I'm uh, clicking here. I'm looking for at a note somewhere about probiotics. There's something I wanted to mention about this. Um, Oh, what was it? See microbiome. Ah, there we are. So I was talking about the different foods that you can uh, do for your microbiome. So one of the biggest um, uh, bacteria in your body is called acromancia. So this is a surveillance bacteria, so to speak, in your gut. It is in the mucus of your gut. That's where it lives. And it kind of screens things as stuff goes through. So again, surveillance bacteria, great. Antibiotics kill it. They wipe it out. And odds are, if you're like me, you've probably had some kind of infections before. I used to get strep throat a lot when I was real young, when I was a kid. And you were on antibiotics. Antibiotics really hurt this bacteria. However, you cannot supplement with it. You cannot get a probiotic for it and grow it back. So the only way to get more acromancia bacteria is to focus on your diet. So specifically, they try to regrow your mucus system in your gut. So if you eat foods that expand or thicken your gut mucus, then this bacteria acromantia has more of a home, more of a place to live. And as a result, it's going to expand and flourish. So one of the things that they've looked at for Acromancia is pomegranate juice. And pomegranate juice seems very beneficial in helping regrow acromantia bacteria. Sorry for the little sidetrack there for a second. I, just, I knew that I had that somewhere and it wasn't in the show notes, but I did want to mention it because it is some cool stuff, cool information, good to have. So what else do we have? protein consumption. So you cannot live without consuming protein. That's why we have amino acids that are called essential because your body cannot make them, but they your body needs it to live. So there's studies that show the lower your protein consumption, the worse your immune system is or the worse your immune health is. So the best way to improve protein consumption is not to necessarily eat more, but make sure you're getting protein from highly bioavailable sources. So some people might eat 80 grams of protein, but their body might not absorb all 80 grams. Maybe it only absorbs 40 grams. This is where the protein bioavailability scale comes in. And I want to load this graphic here just so I can... Talk about it more accurately, but like I said before, eggs are top of the chart. So let's pull this up here. You can type this into Google and just get a general run-of-the-mill kind of thing here. Here we are. So bioavailability. Here we are. So highest natural occurring protein source for bioavailability is eggs. Whole eggs. Are 100 on the bioavailability index. Whey protein, especially whey protein isolate, uh, breaks the scale. It is above that of an egg. So if you're looking to add more protein and you want something um, that's high bioavailability, meaning your body can use it, uh, as long as you don't have any kind of issues with whey protein, so milk protein source, it is the Best on this scale. Um, and again, this varies based on your source, but I have seen eggs at the top consistently. Following the eggs, you have the egg white, which contains most of the protein in an egg. The yolk is more of the micronutrients, so different vitamins and cholesterol and all that. Uh, cow's milk is also on here. I did not mention that earlier, um, but cow's milk is very highly rated. Fish, beef, casein, chicken, all of those are very highly rated protein sources. So again, these are all animal sources of protein. Uh, I will note, however, you don't see uh, pork on these. And that's typically because pork is considered a lower quality um, meat. Because pigs kind of just roam around and eat whatever most of the time. So um, I would like to see turkey on here. Here's another one that has turkey on it. And turkey falls right in line with chicken. So just to give you a little perspective there. But here's the thing. The plant sources of protein rate lower on the bioavailability scale. So soy, wheat, beans, peanuts, they're all in the 40s and 50s. The animal sources are around 80 and up. So some of your plant sources are half the bioavailability of animal sources. So if you consumed 30 grams of whey protein and you consumed 30 grams of a plant protein, then you would absorb, so your body would be able to use much more of the whey protein than the plant protein. Now, again, I'm not here saying you should not go vegan. So if you're someone who's considering going vegan, or you are vegan or vegetarian or whatever, then a big thing is going to be watching your protein intake and making sure you get enough bioavailable protein. And say you're getting 100 grams of protein, and you're still not feeling the benefits from it, You might need to increase your protein intake a little bit to, say, 120, 130 grams of protein, depending on your size and all that, um, just because of the difference in bioavailability. You can get enough protein, and you can get all the essential amino acids you need from plant sources. However, at the end of the day, the meat sources and animal sources of protein are still superior to the plant proteins. And again, this is scientifically proven. So I do want to point that out. Um, Exact amounts of protein, how much should you eat? The formulas look to be about 0.8 to 1.1 grams per kilogram of body weight. Or a simple rule, if you know your body fat percentage is to do one gram of protein per pound of lean mass. So for example, I weigh about 175 pounds, I'm 7% body fat, so let's say I was 10% for mathematical purposes. So 175 minus 17.5, let's see here, doing math in my head here, about 158 pounds of lean mass. So that would say my body needs to take in about 158 grams of protein per day, and then I'm good. Great. So, that's protein. Great thing, helps immune system, and is essential for your body. So, last thing, and this is another thing. Again, these are all things that I do on a daily basis, um, whether it's consuming them or doing things, like I said, with the exercise, journaling, hobbies, that sort of thing. All things that I'm doing daily. So, lastly, tea. Tea. And personally, I love to drink green tea. Green tea is my favorite. So tea is full of antioxidants. It's full of health-boosting properties. It is something that is also antimicrobial, antiviral, and antibacterial. Now, the exact effects of different teas will vary based on the kind that you're drinking. So for example, peppermint tea versus black tea, Versus chamomile tea are all going to exert very different effects on the body. So you kind of have to know your tea a little bit before going in. And I know a lot of tea companies like Peak Tea, Harney and Sons, they tend to have some kind of guide that goes with their tea on, you know, optimal time to drink it, benefits, that sort of thing. So for example, I usually drink chamomile tea later at night because it helps me to relax and get me ready for bed and kind of tone down. Um, there's also some kind of blue zones work. So just looking at places where people live the longest. And one thing that they find is tea consumption, especially green tea. And one study actually looked at one of these areas in Asia, and they found a lower risk of all-cause mortality when consuming green tea tea daily, and the more you consumed, the lower your risk of all-cause mortality was, up to, I have here, five or six cups a day, which is a lot of tea. I don't know if I could handle that much personally, but just goes to show that in these areas where people are living to their hundreds, living real long, healthy lives, disease-free, tea is a focus, And tea is something that we know is very good for us. So it's probably something we should drink. And again, if you're not sure where to start, please reach out to us on social media. I would be happy to help and get you pointed in the right direction. So with that, that is going to do it for today's episode. Talked all about different lifestyle habits and nutritional habits you can do to optimize your health, especially your immune system. And again, these are all things that I'm doing on a daily basis heading back into the upcoming fall semester where I'm going to be in person for some of my coursework around other people again for the first time in months. So, And I will be wearing a mask, of course. So thank you so much for listening and for supporting the Brown Body Podcast. Please reach out to us on social media and let us know how we're doing Give us some feedback and tell us how you thought the podcast was. Also, if you liked this podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend or anyone you know who might benefit from hearing this information. Thank you again for your support and have a great rest of your day. And one last time, show notes are posted at brawnbodytraining.com. Thank you.